Welcome to today's episode of The Growth Zone. I am Christian Bartsch. What is the core benefit of listening to this show? Business leaders in corporate and privately held companies gain insights into trends and strategies that provide them with a competitive advantage in the marketplace. Each episode focuses on an area such as marketing, sales, innovation or funding that is absolutely critical to the growth of companies, whether they are startups or corporate global players, where management needs to juggle the challenges of market entry or knowing how to navigate the uncertainties of disruptive developments. Mindfeeding is where clarity evolves and helps solving organizational challenges. For those who listen to the entire episode, I have a special surprise gift. I am working on some great guests that are industry leaders in management, innovation and marketing. Let's get started on today's episode. Today I'm with Dan McClure and we are going to be talking about following topic. How organizations survive in industries that experience turmoil. So Dan, before we get started, can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, I actually started my career in an industry that was experiencing turmoil. I was working for a few months as a civil engineer at a local utility, which should have been perhaps the calmest, least exciting job in the world. And then that local utility ended up getting deregulated by the federal government. And all of a sudden, there was a massive rush to figure out how do we reinvent an entire industry in the space of months. And fortunately, what I discovered in that mad rush was that I had a real talent for looking at the big picture of things, seeing how things could be reinvented, not piece by piece, but as a whole. How do we redesign an entire system around an industry? And I got to spend a decade reinventing that industry and being at the center of all that change. And from there, I went and played as an entrepreneur, doing that same sort of reinvention, not at an industry level, but really at the practical level of how do you create a scalable business um, from scratch. And since then, I've been really focusing on the whole challenge of system innovation for all sorts of organizations, whether that's like a commercial organization, like a major auto company, or a nonprofit that's trying to really make a difference in humanitarian aid. All of these are places where there's these big, gnarly problems. And I have the real luxury of being able to take system innovation type work and, and play in those spaces. Yeah, that sounds really good. So um, we were looking at... Um Organizations, as you said, some organizations will be disrupted eventually. And when we look at what's happening now, we see a lot is happening. It's not just only the automotive industry with um, 
people wanted to have electric cars or um, hydrogen-powered cars and everybody discussing what should I buy, what should I not buy. The same thing as well, of course, travel industry. Can I travel safely or not? How can I travel? Or people saying, I don't want to travel with the airline. I travel with maybe a private jet or I want to have a learn to fly in order not to be somewhere stuck in some kind of schedule of an airline. And there are many, many other industries, restaurants, not being able to open, so they have to have some way to deliver their food and generate revenue. It's a wide range of disruption. Many, many industries have been hit, and in the future they'll be as well um, experiencing the need to reinvent the way they do things, the way they approach customers, the way they present the products, and even how to actually get leads, get people to be coming back again and it doesn't matter whether you're selling a pizza or whether you're selling a brand new SUV. You have to get people to come back. And that's the biggest challenge for many customers as well. Because people evolve, people change their habits, businesses change as well their habits. And sometimes they have to because they have no other choice. So Dan, what do you see as a way to uh, survive in an industry that is experiencing such kind of turmoil. So I think a lot of this comes from recognizing what how disruption is different from the normal types of business innovation and business change that you need to work on. First off, disruption actually threatens the way you think about how you create value, what customers want, what the standards of success are. So you have to be able to step back and say, let go of that status quo view and imagine something that's fundamentally different in the way the industry works. So you mentioned you know, the idea that um, restaurants needed to figure out a way to deliver food if they couldn't open. But that's really only a first step in reimagining that industry. How much more could a really creative restaurant do around how do you meet that need of people to have an exciting, interesting food experience? Somehow having semi-cold dumplings arrive at your door doesn't seem like the epitome of what should be possible. So there's a whole world of deeper change that's still waiting out there to be reimagined. And this is really the first big step, is imagining that bigger, deeper change that could happen. And then the second thing is realizing that once change begins to go forward, it's going to go forward at an amazingly fast rate. One of my favorite statistics coming out of the early part of the of the COVID crisis from last year, although it's probably bad to have favorite statistics from COVID, um, is that telehealth, you know, remotely provide healthcare, increased by 16,000% in just six months. Think about that. You've got an industry that basically grew by 160 times in just six months. That's the kind of like, you fall off the cliff into the new system that happens. And so just recognizing you've got to make these big changes and that when they happen, they're going to happen suddenly is a different kind of creative experience than most organizations are prepared for. 
Exactly. And the same thing is like with, with the airlines and so on. They suddenly said, oh, we don't need the big aircraft. We don't need the 747. We don't need the Airbus 80 or so. And then suddenly they think, mm, we would need them as cargo. They have to, they put boxes on uh, passenger seats and all sorts of makeshift solutions. Uh, they obviously didn't even have the time to even just go and unscrew the, the seats and just use the space in between somehow also. And it's it shows how sometimes disruption is so fast that uh, they only a makeshift solution um, helps to at least reduce a bit of the pressure on the pot that we experience in the industry. Yeah, I think makeshift solutions can oftentimes point to like ideas that might lead you into the future, but I think the most successful organizations don't treat a crisis like whack-a-mole, this game where you basically take a hammer and just try to smack these things that pop out of, out of the game. Instead of seeing a crisis as something that you have to deal with issue one and then rush to deal with issue two and rush to deal with issue three, a system innovation perspective basically says, Let's take this chance to step back and imagine what a future vision where all the pieces fit together, but they're different, look like. So imagine Uber. Uber was never going to be formed one piece at a time. You needed all those key ideas, the idea of being able to order transportation on demand, the idea that you wouldn't own taxis anymore, but rather you would use a shared economy to provide the actual services. The idea that there are variable rates. It's all of those pieces working together that made Uber feasible and possible. And that's really a big step for a lot of folks because they often approach a crisis as, how do I put boxes in the seat? When in many ways, what they really need to do is step back and say, What's a fundamentally different system here that would deliver a new kind of value in a new way that would look completely different from what we see today? Yeah, exactly. And as you say, we look at Uber, for instance, they have Uber food and all different other things. And of course, there are plenty of people who try to copy an idea or uh, adjust their own idea to I say mimic Uber or other kind of business models, but of course, if they don't understand the why and where it's going towards, they can't really, really successfully copy it, at least to to the degree. Yeah, I think copying's interesting because there's two types of folks that copy things. There are the folks that have the old business model and try to copy elements of Uber. So, for example, in the in New York City. In the wake of Uber coming in and in the space of just a few years, actually offering more rides than New York City taxicabs, taxicabs began offering a mobile app that would allow you to hail a taxicab. Well, that's fine, but that's only part of the whole system. And as a result, you know, many of these large legacy companies that try to offer a feature of a new system are still burdened down by the old system that they work with. And this is perhaps the advantage that like a Tesla has over an Audi or a General Motors. Exactly, because when you look at it with Uber, I can select where I'm going and it tells me what it's going to cost. 
and a taxi usually doesn't tell you even on an app you can't even know how much yeah and it's even deeper than that because the fundamental ownership model for how you own cars and how they're deployed is different between the two and so uber can take advantage of that app in ways that a taxi cab company that has to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in licensing fees for each car can't exactly and it's and then it's uh, the model upside down yeah i think the other type of organization that you see copying you know one of these system innovations is like lyft or the other rideshare companies that basically said oh we do see this new system and we're going to rush in behind and make a quick copy of it and in many ways traditionally these fast follow companies were seen as the smart players because they didn't have to experience the risk of inventing something brand new and they could rapidly copy you know what was successful the problem with system innovation is that it's often difficult to put together all the pieces so it's hard to be the quite as fast a follower as, as you might otherwise think but the other thing is because this original company has a new system it's like they've got a toolkit for inventing the future in a new way and they're going to be better positioned to continue to run ahead even of the fast followers so oftentimes you see you know many other organizations rushing into you know copy a particular new system model but the leader that pioneered that if they still have those chops for inventing new systems, is already pushing into yet another system innovation. Exactly. So they actually then start to, let's say, they're starting to trip over the, the, the speed that is being generated by the real innovator. And then it, it just becomes too complicated, too complex, and they just can't really get everything to work together anymore because they, they don't know where it's going. They have no idea what, where the journey is actually going, and that's how then they mess up themselves instead of trying to come up with something of their own and not having to copy everybody else. Yeah, and I think you know you bring up the point of knowing where the journey is going. This is so crucial in system innovation. You know, much of the work that was done in product innovation that, um, you know, was popularized by um, like Lean Startup and the user-centered design mo movement was about doing small focused iterations on, you know, relatively narrowly defined innovations and products. And that was great if you're going to develop a mobile app. But really, if you're going to reimagine the way an entire form of value is delivered, whether it's getting food to people in a, in a health crisis or reimagining what's the role of an automotive company or changing the way you do taxis, that requires a future vision of how all those pieces work together. And so, you know, you need a different kind of long-term vision. And oftentimes, the companies that do the first round of system innovation have yet another vision out beyond there. So for example, Uber's not sitting there thinking about just how do I continue to offer more ride sharing? 
they're looking out beyond the question of what happens when self-driving cars become available. How does that change the transportation system? And of course, it's not just Uber, it's Tesla and Apple and everybody else in, in those technology fields is imagining a world where people don't need to own cars, where the entire transportation network operates differently than it does today in one that's based on car ownership. Exactly, and that's uh, the thing where you see uh, that already today there's so many people in different big in big cities that actually don't own a car, and of course when they need them they just go to a rental company or if it's just short uh, journey they'll take a Uber or anything like that that kind of service, uh, and that of course changes their way of looking at things. But when you think of it now in the pandemic, such people experience the problem they couldn't get a rental car because all the rental cars were buying up the secondhand cars and renting them all out because it was a huge money maker for them. Everybody wanted a car, no public transport. <laughs> you know, I think this is this is what's so interesting is you know, you've got this dynamic going on all the time between sort of the point responders like you've got you know we're buying up all the used cars so that we can we can offer them back out and that's a short-term narrow opportunity and they probably have made quite a bit of money on that but it misses the bigger system change opportunity and i think that's one of the things that if we're going to draw a broader lesson from it is if you're a mid-sized company and you realize that your traditional value proposition is being threatened, you know whether you're working in education or media or energy, you realize that what you've been offering is no longer going to have value in the future, then you really need to be thinking about what's an entire network of things that you can bring together that will create new and different value. And I think, you know, that's really every organization needs to be able to intentionally do this as part of their, their regular business process. Exactly. And that's, it just changes the whole perspective on, on what people then actually get in this kind of system. Yeah. And uh, when you look at these things, companies being disrupted for through all different things it's not only the pandemic but there's well many things regulations that have maybe long long been set like uh, reducing um carbon ex uh, let's say the carbon exposure of of vehicles and other kind of things and so on or, or where they've said we want to do less of this or use less plastic and, and pollute the oceans less and so on of course it m means then then let's say even recently i just read like I think it's 14 billion, uh, 14 billion liters of water are used to produce um, leaflets that are usually stuck in our letterboxes. Oh, that's that's kind of terrifying, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, think of it. At least I noticed um, at my home that uh, through the pandemic, I hardly get any um, paper advertising anymore. It's I just get. Uh, I just actually get letters and 
now and then maybe a catalog, but even that is already quite thin. So obviously pe uh, companies are noticing the change. And recently I was looking at uh, some new cars and I asked the dealer, hey, do you have a catalog that I can take with me to check as well, see the details and so on, how much space is there? That I think, okay, is this going to be big enough when I travel around? Yeah. And he said, no, we haven't. Uh, you can look online. I thought, okay, that's a change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because you know you listed out several different types of problems, and at first they sound very different, right? You've got the issue of climate impact and climate change. You have the question of the pandemic and the effect of disease, um, you know, on the entire way people live across the globe. Even before the pandemic, there was talk of a fourth industrial revolution. You know, these new technologies of Internet of Things, robotics, big data, AI, all coming together. And, you know, those sit on top of huge social shifts, um, you know, often unnoticed in all the things that we've been talking about in the last year and a half because of the things I just mentioned, is we're going through this massive shift in the world of urbanization. And, you know, there has never been a migration at the level that we see today of rural to urban living. And so all of these big shifts are actually system-based problems. And increasingly, it's going to be the case where system problems begin to tangle up with one another. So, you know, we think about what should an auto company do? Well, that's partly tied up in climate choices, right? And it's also questions of how does the need for transportation shift under a pandemic? And if there's mass urbanization going on, well, that's going to shift things too. And as a result, we see start seeing opportunities not as small point things, but as being part of these big system problems. Yeah, and that's uh, where you think of it. For instance, when you look at all these things that I mentioned before, they're all somehow related with each other because when you think some leaflets are shipped to you in a plastic foil, and that, of course, straight away lands in the bin. And then uh, in some countries, all this plastic is disposed, or they're maybe they're printing it abroad somewhere, packaging it, and the plastic that they can't use, they just put dump it into some waste, and eventually it goes into lakes, from lakes into the sea, ocean and everything then that's uh, a huge problem of course and on the other hand if we are not using any more such leaflets other people of course can't sell the leaflets they cannot sell the printing services the plastics and so on the paper and eventually of course other industries are disrupted and they have to start thinking okay if we can't sell a paper we can't sell plastic yeah. we can't sell printing services and so on we can't ship leaflets We have to find something new. Yeah, this this whole, what's fascinating about system issues is they tend to cascade on one another. And mm -hmm. so just as you laid out, you know, what is a disruptive change in one industry doesn't stay neatly inside that industry. It begins to cascade and flow through all sorts of, you know, related and in many cases, what feel like very far-flung industries. One of my hypotheses at this point is that one of the biggest impacts of COVID is actually going to be to really transform education 
and it will have provided the impetus to break many of the you know hundred plus year old institutions that have dominated our approach to education. And so you know this cascading of effects, I think, is really you know one of the things that makes it so hard to predict exactly where all of this is going to go, but at the same time increases the need for organizations to know how to make this kind of scalable systems change part of part of their DNA. Yeah, and that's the thing, of course, knowing how to, I think that's the most difficult thing. And it doesn't matter whether it's a small company, medium-sized, or even a huge multinational corporate, it's not an easy task to achieve. Yeah, and I think the fact that it's not easy doesn't mean that it's not necessary. Um, oftentimes, organizations are given, you know, choices of whether or not they take on a hard challenge. You know, do we want to go into that new market? No, that looks like it's too hard. When disruptions involved, you really don't have the choice. And so, maybe I could just outline what we generally see as the four key things that organizations need to be prepared to do to create this institutional capability for systems response. The first is recognizing the scale and the nature of the challenge. So seeing the challenge as a large systems challenge that can't be addressed with incremental change. The second is then imagining a vision of a new system. So don't imagine a feature or a test or a single response to a, you know putting boxes on the seat of the airplane, but rather imagine what the new system is going to look like that's going to differentiate you and create value in this new marketplace. The mm -hmm. third is to build the organizational capacity that allows you to intentionally pursue that new system change. And that means you're going to have to change things across the org. This won't be an innovation lab that can go off and do it on its own. And finally, you're going to need new types of people. You're going to need folks that naturally think in a bigger picture, who naturally cross lines and break boundaries. Most organizations are actually pretty good at firing these types of folks because they disrupt and you know they don't stay neatly in the box. And what's going to be necessary in the future, if you're going to become an intentional system innovator, is you're actually going to have to find, retain, and empower these, what we call choreographers of complex change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because when you think of it, it's, it's exactly the thing that usually big companies don't like. They don't like these people who think, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> why are you doing this thing? It reminds me actually even of a funny thing, because when I, I was ending my at the end of my apprenticeship that I did after leaving school I had to uh, I had to enter into a system I had to enter invoices that were had to be sent to um, to the dealerships of BMW and it was crazy because I had to I eventually started counting how many times I had to press the same buttons it was totally ludicrous because I had to press in the same sequence as well 35 buttons in the same way and then the rest was maybe five buttons or five things small minute things and i thought why isn't the system intelligent enough to actually go and create like allow like to create a 
template and say, okay, I want to multiply this, let's say 50 times, and I just enter this, this, this different information each time. Instead of me having to repeat 35 times for one thing, the same thing, and this multiplied by 50, it's just inefficient. <laughs> and then yeah. you notice you don't fit in that uh, box if the system or the organization isn't willing to notice, hey, we're doing something really expensive for ourselves. <laughs> well, you know, ironically, that's how I started my career. I started my career doing manual engineering calculations. Mm. And I was not really very good at it. And I kept thinking, I could program this. And so I actually started creating a program to do my entire job of these, you know, future plans for engineering of, of energy facilities. And it was completely unauthorized. It was beginning to take time away. And I was very near to being fired. The only thing that saved me in that situation was that the industry got that deregulation notice. And all of a sudden, the program that I had written, mostly so that I wouldn't have to keep typing stuff in, was really crucial to their survival. And so instead of being fired, I got a team, which was kind of cool. But that's that's kind of an unusual story. It's not uncommon for you know the people with the bigger perspective who break across things to you know find that they're moving from job to job to job. Exactly, because they just don't fit in it, and and people then of course notice, hey, this this guy is coming up with ideas that we don't like. It's 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 annoying us because it's be, apparently you are. Uh, putting the finger always in the wound and they don't like it and it's yeah. annoying and they're not willing to innovate and it takes some time until they're pushed so far that they really start innovating because they have no choice. But the thing is, by then, usually most of these innovative people have moved on and either found some smart employer who's got bright and willing to add this person to their innovative team or they've started their own business because otherwise you just don't fit in it otherwise. Yeah. And I think this is one of the big shifts when we talk about creating an organization that's capable of doing system innovation, system change. It's partly building an organization that institutionally supports this type of person. And you know, I, th I think that's going to be a big shift for a lot of businesses, both medium size and, and very large. You know, I've seen it as a challenge across almost every type of organization. Yeah, and that's what's really going to be a game changer for, for those who survive uh, some disruption and uh, those who are not able to adapt or are able to actually learn from it. They'll just disappear eventually. Or at least, even if they survive, they won't be a significant contributor yeah. to the industry. Yeah, obsolescence or commodification. Those are mm. your two choices if you can't imagine big impact change. Yeah, and, other, and often, of course, some of them are just then, let's say, taken over by other companies. They put take out what's really valuable in that business and then they get rid of it. Whether it's the factories, whether it's the people or the products, they just keep the patents and maybe some of this and other kind of stuff and the rest is throughout. And sometimes they even dispose even of the brands because the brand doesn't have any value for them anymore. Yeah. And, you know, that's so sad because 
It's not that what we've done in the past has no value. It's Uh that for it to have value, it needs to be put in the context of a new system. And so it's not like a worn out pair of jeans that you've got to throw out because there's just no value in, in a worn out pair of jeans anymore. It's we need to transform those assets and resources that we have in a really imaginative and different way, rather than trying to just incrementally improve them. And oftentimes, there's a lot that can be done. And you know, so to see them basically stripped down and sold for parts is really sad because so much more could be done. Yes, and that's uh, where then the market, of course, changes and tries to reinvent and clean up as well, of course, uh, a kind of a market, let's say, purification again. And then then eventually as well, sometime there'll be again a disruption and it'll change. Oh. And well, and, you know, that sometime is probably next week. You know, <laughs> yeah. disruption is not, I think in the 20th century, disruption was seen as a once in a lifetime kind of um, event, you know, a black swan that came in and, you know, changed an industry. But once you, if you survive that, then it was back to business as usual. There is no more business as usual. Exactly. And it used to be like uh, after big wars and other kind of stuff. But now we have uh, war zones in a different way, different place, different location. It's now more actually a different kind of global world and it's changing its speed. So of course yeah. it doesn't matter whether it's software products or whatever. Every every week you have innovation. When you think of it, for instance, automotive industry, there were the plans of every five, six years a new model would come out. Now partly every year they have to do a proper innovative refresh. Otherwise, uh, people are just not going to buy because just look at Tesla and so on. They're pumping out so many new models all the time and refreshing, refreshing. And of course, if somebody goes in a shop and wants to buy a new car, say, well, how fast can I update my car? It's all we're talking about updating my phone, updating my car. And some manufacturers say, "Uh, updating, uh, yeah, Musk can do it. Why can't you do it? Uh, I think this is hmm. where it becomes exciting with the technology because technology can enable you to make system change more easily. So, you know, the idea that I can literally rewire my car remotely, you know, that I can create through the use of technology new systems that perform differently. And that ability to make change even easier builds on, you know, the trend of globalization that you mentioned earlier and another Mm -hmm. major trend of just everybody is getting educated at a much higher rate and level across the world. And, you know, in that mentioning of like reinventing education, it's now possible to be in any country in any part of the world and take classes at Stanford. That's kind of an amazing thing when you think about just the access to really deep, insightful knowledge that's now available so broadly. And so you take new technologies, the ability of technology to make change easy, the ability to educate in a global environment, all of those things really can fuel just this increasingly hyper rate of of, uh, creative change. Yeah, and exactly when I think of it, uh, 
when you think that even was available already 15 years ago, but it wasn't available in every country for every university. Like for instance, I when I did my studies, I could access uh, a digital um, database with books, magazines, everything uh, like uh, LexisNexis and all different yeah. things through the university. And it was great because I could do it wherever I was. And during my studies, I lived, I think, in three different countries. So it was quite a change, but I didn't have to be on site in Australia all the time. I could be in different places and it didn't matter because as well, uh, sometimes I did project work together with other students who were living in totally other kind of places around the world and it didn't matter. And now we look at um, the pandemic as well, traditional universities who suddenly had to offer online education so that they didn't miss out as well on the revenues because if a university can't bill for um, education, they're going to have a huge problem because they have huge costs, premises. Just look yeah. at the this vast size of traditional and typical universities. They're huge. Yeah. The keep up, the buildings and, and the security. All that ivy oh. and buildings oh. costs a lot of money. Yeah. I think yeah, and it's yeah, and even if they've been built like 100 years ago, somebody has to maintain them. Yeah. I think, you know, when you begin to see systems shift, you know, it, it can begin this way of like a university is offering online courses. And that feels like sort of a move of necessity. But once you start offering online courses, all these other things are potentially able to shift in the system. For example, you don't need a thousand professors teaching a subject in a country. Instead, you can find the five best professors that teach that subject, and they can be really the key providers of that knowledge. Or if there's somebody who's got a really divergent opinion, they can offer a contrary view in that course. And so suddenly the nature of what's provided and who's providing it begins to shift. And that whole system then, you know, further erodes the Ivy building, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I see that as well when I look at uh, countries like even countries like Poland, so on, where I'm as well involved with some business investors as well in uni private universities, uh, even in private universities, there's so much being changed and adapted and uh, it's huge innovation that's happening. And in other parts of Europe, there's well lots of plenty of private universities, which is not as traditional as when you go, for instance, to UK or to the US, where you've got a lot of private universities where it's traditional that you pay a lot of money for just even accessing courses and that. Um, when you compare it, like maybe if you do a bachelor, maybe in the US, you might have debts of maybe. 30, 60, 80,000, depending oh, on the oh, university. Oh, 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 You underestimate. More? more. Oh, well more, yes. Well more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because that's what I usually as well compare with my stuff that I did in Australia when I compare to Germany. Um, here, usually, the main cost is usually living because uh, the universities, they traditionally charge maybe per semester, maybe 200 to $800 or so, which is... When I compare it to everything outside, uh, it's quite a big gift from yeah. the government <laughs> to well, others. And you know that investment is real is real dollars or 
or marks mm-hmm. or whatever. But yeah. I think the thing, or euros in in in, in today's world, I guess. But mm. the thing about it is that it's really needs to be a valued investment. It needs to be an investment that delivers potential value for the future. And I think this is where you know we begin to need to shift our thinking about what we demand out of institutions like education. It can't be enough that we figure out a better, more efficient way of delivering the kind of education we did before. We really need to recognize these new needs, this need for this choreographer system thinking, for example, and figure out how do we teach that? How do we get those skills into people's minds and and something that they can apply directly? So I think, you know, governments have a real opportunity here to, you know, potentially push and influence things in a positive direction of enabling bigger change. But at the same time, they can act as a break on it. You know, perhaps keeping old standards and old requirements in place that restrict the ability to, you know, make deeper and more imaginative change. Yeah, and you need to get people as well in those government positions that are more, let's say, not necessarily liberal, but pro-innovative thinking and willing to go and try out new stuff and say, hey, let's try this and this out or look at this and this stuff and say, hey, do we really still need it? Like, does everybody need to learn Latin or everybody to need to do chemistry or this and this if they are not going to do anything? Because somebody who, let's say, is going to do uh, be an accountant, He doesn't need to know anything about Latin. He doesn't need to know physics or, well, the physics of dropping your pen on the floor. Okay, uh, that's not relevant for an accountant. I think one of the things that I find interesting here is you have a certain type of, you know, sclerosis that happens where you know people are locked into place because it's something familiar and something comfortable Mm. and it's one thing for somebody to be the type of person who says i'm willing to knock down the status quo you know the revolutionary who's willing to say the present needs to change and it's almost like they don't care how it changes that person is useful in some ways because they can help break down, you know, the traditions that have locked things in place. But unless they're paired with somebody who can see a future vision of how all the pieces fit together, simply knocking down the status quo doesn't help. You really need the ability to say, I'm knocking down the status quo and I'm putting this vision of how all these pieces can fit together in a new way. And oftentimes, there's a real shortage of that sort of future vision work. You know, this is one of the key parts of, you know, making system innovation work is you need to be able to see the whole system of where you're going, not just the individual pieces that you want to change. Yeah. So um, it was great having you here, Dan, on the show. And before we put an end to this episode... How can people get in contact with you, find out more, and so on? So certainly you can find me on LinkedIn, but also, you know, our website, um, innovationecosystem.com, 
talks more about the challenges of system innovation and the things that systems innovation can do for organizations that are facing disruptive threats or want to become the disruptors who take advantage of big opportunities. So that's innovationecosystem.com. Great. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Growth Zone with Christian Barge. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review or rating here on iTunes or on podchaser.com. If you found the content helpful, then share it on social media. I would like to invite you to follow our show so that you don't miss the upcoming interviews with leaders in the market. Simply visit the website follow.prmediareach.com. I will be adding the link also to the description of this episode so that you just need to click on that link. For those of you who are listening and signing up to follow the show, I have reserved a free copy of the ultimate guide on content marketing. This is the strategy that got me top corporate clients like McDonald's, Linde, Hewlett-Packard, Deutsche Bank, Volvo and many others. That strategy has been working for over 10 years. It also got me contacts with police, transport authorities, military and several universities and even leading research institutes. For sure, it also worked wonders as it got me many small, medium-sized entrepreneurs and enterprises as clients. And that even included international clients from all around the world. The link to sign up for our free broadcasting service and the guide is follow.prmediareach.com. That will give you access to the most recent version of my ultimate guide on content marketing. You can follow me as well on Twitter by using the Twitter handle CAPBarge. That's spelled Charlie Alpha Papa 
Bravo, Alpha, Romeo, Tango, Sierra, Charlie, Hotel. Yes, that is C-A-P, Barge. Charlie, Alpha, Papa, Bravo, Alpha, Romeo, Tango, Sierra, Charlie, Hotel. 